All right, y'all. Um, I'm here to do the reading for today. Um, today's reading comes from Job 13, uh, 1 through 5, and then 12. And this is kind of what Job has to say um, about Psalm and Proverbs. So again, Job 13, 1 through 5, and 12. Look, my eyes have seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. All of you are worthless physicians. If you would only keep silent, that would be your wisdom. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. This is the reading for today. Hey again, everyone. Still Jonah, still they, them, theirs, and we are still in a series on wisdom. Um, we've come to the book of Job, which is in conversation with the other wisdom literature, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, a handful of the Psalms, and the poetry sprinkled throughout Scripture. Um, honestly, Job, I've really been looking forward to uh, and also am intimidated by. It's, it's the most important to me, um, but it's also a struggle because we all have different needs in how we encounter injustice and suffering in the world. And that's actually why we have all three perspectives and more uh, in the Bible, is because we need different things at different times, um, different interpretations at different moments. But Job is one that I turn to most often. Um, and when we have a lot of grief and loss, injustice in our lives, we have to have frameworks to go to. And that's why the scriptures have given us uh, a handful, really, to choose from in order to make sense of the world that's around us. So to recap some of these other ones that we've been engaging, <clears throat> last week we talked about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was the primary uh, source that I needed at a different point in my life. Uh, Ecclesiastes has kind of lost hope in the goodness of God, and so looks at the world and says, God is at best a mystery. God is certainly powerful, maybe good, maybe not, but unknowable either way. And so God made an order for the universe, but we can't know what it is, and we have nothing to do with it. And so it's just washing over us all of the time, and we're doing our best to stay afloat. Ecclesiastes is a philosophical writing that basically says you just have to Go with the flow of life and get what you can when you can. Because understanding is beyond us, and we're all subject to this mysterious order of creation, and all will suffer and die, so deal. It's a really gloomy and dark perspective on suffering in a lot of ways. But there is a kind of realism to it that at various points has been really reassuring to me in my life. To feel like someone at least sees what's going on. Proverbs, which is where we started, is some of the most ancient wisdom 
that the Bible has to offer around how to live the good life and what to make sense of in the world. Proverbs is a, a collection of maxims, of sayings, and the premise is that God is good and that God made a good and knowable order to the world, and the world is good. And in some ways, that's true. Physics are generally pretty consistent. Um, you know, the, the experiences we have of love and forgiveness, of trust and relationship are largely repeatable. The world does have a logic and an order that makes sense, and when we return to it, we benefit from that. Proverbs really emphasizes, you have a part in this. You have some role to play. You have some control over your destiny. And it goes further to say you are responsible for doing right by God, and therefore right by yourself. Job enters this discourse. He engages both premises, the sort of Ecclesiastes, you know, just give up, stop trying, why do you even, why do you even think any of this matters, as well as Proverbs. But he focuses more on Proverbs, that ancient wisdom, this understanding that there is an order to the universe, and that that order is imposed by God so that we can hack it. Proverbs believes in something called retributive justice. That's largely disputed by the rest of the Bible. Um, restorative justice is a much more uh, powerful framework for me in scriptures. But retributive justice is sort of tit for tat, eye for an eye. Uh, it's, a, it's karma. It says if you do good, you'll get good. You get what you put out. And Job really has a bone to pick with that idea because it hasn't worked out very well before his life. So in this premise where Proverbs says, God is good, the order is good, the world is good, and Ecclesiastes says, God is, eh, the order is a mystery and the world is a mess. Job comes in and agrees and disagrees with them both. Job says, God is good, I think, or God should be good, and that's worth talking about. So what the heck? What is going on? If God is so good, which I do believe and I'm going to stand on, then why is the world such a mess? Maybe the universe is unknowable, but we should talk about that. We should take our case before God. The premise of Job is take your case before God, be in relationship with God, demand answers, and also be prepared when you don't really get them. It's a frustrating book, but a really important one. Job in the writings, in the wisdom literature, represents a part of wisdom uh, around debate and dialogue. It's philosophy, and there are these extended discourses, mostly between Job and three friends of his. But the interesting thing to me about Job is that it's got these long passages of people arguing with each other, and it contains points like, you know, you get exactly what you deserve, which are immediately refuted by Job, the protagonist, who says, no, you don't. Sometimes terrible things just happen. And so Job is a really great example of why we can't just say, Oh, well, in Job chapter 7, verse 16, it says this, that, and the other. Because you actually can't just pull these pieces out. Even whole paragraphs, even whole speeches by some of these friends contain ideas that are not biblical, that are put in place in order that they can be 
refuted. This book shows us what it means to dialogue about faith, what it means to disagree. And I think the book has a clear perspective. I think the book agrees with Job. I think the Bible points to Job being correct and his friends being incorrect. And so the question is, why put all of that in there? Why not just include Job's bit? And the answer, I think, is so that we know what to do when our relatives are being horrible on Facebook. It makes me think, when I read Job and I read these discourses, it makes me think of how important it is, how biblical it is, um, how just it is for us to be prepared for wrong arguments, to show that it is correct to dispute, it is correct to disagree, it is correct and holy to uh, argue your innocence before others who would blame you for your own suffering, or it is holy to engage bad ideas and say publicly that they are wrong, and not just to shut down debate. I used to be one of those folks who refused to engage on Facebook when, when there was like contentious disagreement. I would be like, okay, this person is a troll. I'm not going to change their mind until I was taught, mostly by uh, radical activists, that the point of showing the debate is not so that you change the mind of that one troll. It's so that you can have a public discourse, so that you can say, hey, reader at home, I know you may be convinced by some of these ideas that this troll is putting into the universe. I know that you may even agree with me, but you don't know what to say back to this objection. Let me demonstrate for you. Let me show you how these bad points can be argued against. Let me show you all the contours of why this troll is wrong. And I believe that the book of Job offers us that kind of discourse, training on how to respond when people say harmful things about suffering, as Job's friends do. Job is a training specifically on how to refute the doctrine of retributive justice that say that there is an explanation for the suffering of the innocent and that explanation is to blame the victim. The premise of Job is bigger than this one dialogue, actually. It begins with a kind of folktale. It's sort of sandwiched. The, the dialogue is sandwiched within this larger story. And uh, it's a strange story. It's one that on its face seems very upsetting. And so, uh, so we're going to dig into a little bit. Um, it's, it's set up in the heavens, right? We begin in the heavens with God. And God is sort of holding court. And the adversary approaches. Now, sometimes the adversary is called the devil, but it's not even the adversary. It's a adversary. So uh, we know that conversations about the devil, whether the devil exists, how how many persons comprise evil, those are for another day. But enter with me into this folktale where we're not taking any of this literally. And the premise of this story is that the devil or a devil or just a jerk, the adversary, approaches God and says, you know, these people that worship you, do they even really like you? And God's like, what are you talking about? Look at Job. Job loves me. And the adversary is like, yeah, he only loves you because you give him stuff. 
He only loves you because he's got good fortune and he's got a wife who he loves and a bunch of kids and like a jillion sheep. Oh, my watch doesn't understand. I will take it off. The adversary doesn't understand either. He says, God, you don't actually have loving relationships with your people. You have commercial relationships with your people. Their worship for you, their devotion to you is a joke. It's based on them getting things. They don't actually love you. And God wants to refute this. God says, no, my relationship with people isn't about transaction. It's not about me giving them things. We actually love each other. And the adversary is like, yeah, prove it. Let's make a bet. I bet you that if you stripped Job of all of his nice things, that he wouldn't love you at all anymore because you're just here to give him stuff. And so even though the bulk of the book of Job is this dialogue about suffering, and that's where we tend to go, it's an interesting premise that it actually begins more with God and saying, do we only love God because of what we get from God? And God's answer is no. Our relationship with God, our love for God is relational. It's not transactional. It's about being together. It's not about receiving gifts. And it's, it's pushing back on this idea that has persisted throughout time that we only worship God so that we can get rewarded. This was really prevalent in the time that this story was written. You would have patron gods who would give you stuff if you gave them stuff. It was like a bartering, trading system. It wasn't deeply relational and loving. It was commerce. And so you would offer one thing to a god, and that god would give you good fortune in return. But we haven't moved away from this in recent years. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with other Christians who have different views on the afterlife than I do about heaven and hell. I'm a universalist. I don't believe that God sends anyone to eternal torture. That sounds like a pretty terrible to me. Um, And I believe that God is a better person than I am. So if I can imagine a better way, then God can definitely imagine a better way. But then one of the pushbacks I get is, well, why would anyone be good and do good and worship God if they weren't trying to get into heaven and avoid hell. And that baffles me. It baffles me, but it baffles me because I don't have that kind of relationship with God. I'm not trying to earn my way into heaven and out of torture. My relationship with God is based on presence and love. I love God. I love being with God. I love feeling God's presence with me. I love the way that our worship shapes our community. I love the invitation into church, into life together. That's the reward for me. The good life is a life of love and worship and devotion. My dad was also a pastor, and he had a member of his congregation uh, who was active in his Lutheran church community. But her husband um, only came to social events, didn't come to worship because he was Catholic. And he went every day to Mass, every day at 6 a.m. My dad said to him once, wow, that must be so important to you. You must really love Mass to go every day at 6 a.m. And he said, oh, I'm just trying to get into heaven. That kind of relationship, according to this cosmic folktale, is heartbreaking 
to God. That's the kind of relationship the adversary wants us to have with God, one that is transactional, one that says, I'm just trying to get in. I'll do what you need me to do. Let me check off the list. God longs for a real relationship, a real relationship of presence where our worship is about being together, not about pleasing our patron so that we get the carrot and not the stick. And so when we enter into this story, we have to know who Job is as the innocent sufferer, but we also have to know who God is as the one longing to be with us, as the one hoping that we don't turn away once we stop getting the things that we ask for. What if all of our relationships were like that? What if we only were kind and loving and present to our parents, our children, our partners, our friends, when they gave us stuff? That doesn't mean that we don't get things from our relationships, from our relationship with God even, but that if we were to just turn away as soon as that transaction didn't pan out the way that we liked, that wouldn't be much of a loving relationship. That would be an exchange. And so God is hoping in the story of Job that Job actually loves him, that Job isn't just using his divine credit card of worship and praise in order to get more sheep. So the adversary says, take it all away from him. See what happens. Now, this can be very troubling if we look at it on its face and say, oh yeah, God's willing to just gamble our lives to prove a point to the devil. That would be very troubling. But that's not the point of this folktale. The point is about God's heart and ours and the nature of our relationship and of our worship. And so, first, Job loses uh, everything he owns. He loses then his children. He loses then his health. Uh, God says to the adversary, you can't kill him. That would kind of ruin the experiment. Um, but you can take everything else away from him. And the adversary even takes away his health. Uh, Job's body is covered in sores. He has lost all of his offspring. He has lost all of his property. And that is where we enter into this new debate, this new dialogue, this new question. How do we respond to innocent suffering? One of the things that's important that they premise at the very beginning of this conversation is that Job has done nothing wrong. They pick Job because he is blameless and upright, righteous. Job is truly innocent, has done nothing to deserve this. And it's another reason we know it's a folktale, right? No human being is completely blameless. No human being has never made a mistake. But Job is blameless, has never made a mistake. And that will prove to be really important as we see how Job's friends react to his suffering. But we know from the outset that this suffering is not Job's fault, that it has nothing to do with him, that in a way it's sort of random in his life that he was just caught up in something else. And so after Job has lost everything, we join him and... He weeps and rages. His three friends come to be with him. In the text, they're called Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I call them Eli, Bill, and Zoe. They come to sit with him, and they sit with him for a week. They don't say anything. They just sit and grieve. 
They bear witness to what's been happening to him. But then Job starts talking. And Job basically says, why? 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 And instead of just continuing to grieve and bear witness, Eli, Bill, and Zoe give him their explanations. So they begin a lengthy debate with him. And helpfully, they begin by saying, uh, it's obviously your fault, Job. So they are arguing from the perspective of Proverbs. And actually, at the beginning, Job agrees with some of their points. When they say, well, God is good, and the order is the order, and uh, two plus two equals four, you messed up, bro. And Job is like, listen, I know. I know that God is good. I know that there is order. I know that it's supposed to work this way. Why isn't it working this way? And that's when he comes in and says things like, I have heard. I know the Proverbs. I know the scriptures. I know what you're talking about. Don't talk to me like, like I don't understand. But like, this isn't working. This isn't how it's supposed to go. I'm supposed to do good and get good. I did good and got horrible. I lost everything. And the friends just continue to insist, nah, Job, you must have screwed up. You must have sinned. If bad things are happening to you, it must be your fault. And there are many threads to their argument. It takes different shapes. It's like maybe your ancestors sinned. Maybe you sinned worse than you even know. You probably deserve worse than you got. You should be grateful for God's mercy for only punishing you this much. Mostly, though, their premise is there is a cosmic order. You didn't put in enough. You got, like, you put bad into the universe. You got bad back. It's your fault. Now, we know that it's not Job's fault in the premise of this story, but this is in here because this is such a human response to suffering. It's so common. Blame the victim. This is what happens when rape and assault victims get that question, well, what were you wearing? This is what happens when black victims of police killings and white executions or murders of black people end up with these hunts into the lives of the victims trying to find what did they do wrong? What exactly happened? What did they say? What did they look like? What did they sound like? As though it justifies being murdered on a jog, as Ahmed Arbery was as though it justifies being tased to the ground and then shot 13 times, as Sean Reed was. What has the victim done wrong? What have they ever done wrong, ever in their lives? And you know what? Nothing justifies that. Nothing justifies what happened this week to Ahmad or to Sean. Nothing you can dig up in the past, no gun you could find or worse, plant in a car, no scowling teenage photo could justify these murders. None. We do this because there's something very tempting about defending our experience of the universe as valid and ordered. We do this because the thought that suffering and evil could befall the truly innocent is terrifying. We do this because it is easier to blame beautiful black children of God for their own executions and murders than to admit that we are all living in a nightmare of white supremacy, police brutality, and vigilante racism. That is a frightening world to live in. And so, to deny it, our culture, 
especially white folks, searches for other answers, other explanations, justifies the way things are by blaming the dead for their deaths. In the book of Job, the author makes clear in no uncertain terms that it is not Job's fault. Blameless, innocent, upright. And that's not because only the truly innocent deserve justice. It's to prove that even in the case of the truly, unimpeachably verified by God innocent person, even their friends will still have the urge to blame them for their own suffering. To say, you must have done something to deserve this, to bring it upon yourself. Because if that's true, we remain in control. Something can be done. Now, in the case of injustices like the assault on black lives, there is something to be done. There are many things that need to be done. And for further instruction on that, that's why we go to the prophets. That's why we continue to read and return to the prophets who make a case for justice, who demand communal repentance and justice for the marginalized. But what about loss and suffering that's more random? What about car crashes and cancer and coronavirus? In Job's case, there's no discernible cause for any of his loss. And his friends still want to blame him. You must have sinned, they insist, over and over for 30 chapters. They believe in retributive justice, that the Proverbs must have been right, that there is an order, that Job just messed it up, that's all. Which means that if they don't mess it up, things will be okay for them. And what is Job's response? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes in my mouth. They mean nothing. All of your wisdom is nothing. You would be wiser to shut up. And that's the scripture that we read today in chapter 13. He debates them over and over, chapter after chapter, insisting not only on his innocence, but on the stupidity of their so-called wisdom, on the failure of their wisdom to speak truth into this moment. And he takes beautiful things that offer beautiful truths in some moments and turns them on their head. I love Psalm 8. It's a wisdom psalm. Psalm 8 We actually meditated on it recently at Echo. So I don't mean to throw these things out the window, just critique them, complicate them. But Psalm 8 is a meditation on the bigness and beauty of God. And there's a line in there. What are mortals that you think of us? What is humankind that you are mindful of us? Yet you place us a little lower than the angels. It's talking about the magnificence of God's universe, how small we seem and yet how thoughtful God is of us. Job rips that to shreds, parodying it, saying, what are human beings that you make so much of them that you set your mind on them, visit them every morning and test them every night? Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me alone while I swallow my own spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target? And so the things that were comforting to Job in another moment now become horrible. The platitudes that had gotten him through his days, the moments of beautiful poetry and wonder that that connected him to God in a previous moment now mean nothing 
now mean nothing. Job demands to speak with God. I think he's tired of speaking to his friends. But he says, I, I, I just want to talk to God. And, and this is the really interesting part, because in Job's tearing apart of the wisdom and the Psalms and everything else, he basically says, God is doing this to me. God is doing this to me. In fact, his wife kind of takes a more Ecclesiastes despair route, while his friends are saying, you messed up, it's your fault, Proverbs is right, you know, you're to blame. His wife is just like, curse God and die. Like literally, I'm not paraphrasing that. She says in the scriptures, curse God and die. She looks at his life and says, this is horrible. She kind of goes the Ecclesiastes route of like, who even knows anything anymore? Like, God is, is somewhere, obviously doesn't care about you. So just curse God and die. But Job says no. Job insists on maintaining the relationship, going to the relationship. Job is proving the adversary wrong in this moment, not by saying, oh, everything's honky-dory, I'll continue to worship God, no change when everything terrible happens to me. But to say, hey, I think God is good, so I'm really, really angry that it seems like God isn't good right now. And I trust and respect my relationship with God enough to go to God about that and to say, what the hell? God, what is happening? And so we see in Job this actual act of love and devotion, of worship, by saying to God, this is horrible, and you are being horrible. Why are you doing this to me? Job demands to speak directly to God over and over and over again. And he laments, he reflects on this. He says, God is supposed to be my defender. God is my redeemer. God is supposed to go with me into court against my accuser. Who's going to defend me in court when God is the accuser, when God is the prosecutor, when God is the judge? Who's supposed to be my defense attorney? God, it's supposed to be you. You're the one who's supposed to have my back. Where are you? What's happening? This is Job, while his friends are trying to tell him, while Eli's like, yeah, you probably messed up, while Bill is saying, you probably messed up worse than you even thought, while Zoe is saying, you know what, you should probably just sit down and shut up because wisdom says you're at fault here. Job doesn't care. Job says you're all wrong. Everything that you have to offer is nothing, is ash in my mouth. I want to speak to God. I want to speak to God, who is supposed to love me, why are you not loving me? When we encounter suffering and the world around us tries to tell us, oh, everything happens for a reason, God is trying to teach you something. You must have been at fault here. The book of Job teaches us that the correct answer is not to entertain any of that, but it is to take our case to God and say, yeah, there is a reason for this. The reason is God sucks. The reason is this is bullshit. The reason is the world is upside down right now and this is not okay. And where is God to answer me? That is what Job does for 30 chapters. And so at the end of the story, after we've been able to witness this discourse, God shows up. 
God does show up. God does come and does some things that are really confusing and disappointing. God shows up to Job and says, okay, I'm here. Let's talk. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you directly. And then the next thing that God says, running the cosmos is, like, complicated. <laughs> and, like, I, I know that you have your own perspective on this, Job, but where were you when I made the mountains? Do you know how to control the sea monsters? Do you know any of this? Like, were you there when the stars were born? Because I was. And it's complicated, and it's bigger than you, and you don't understand everything that's going on. So, you know, just for context, you're a human, and I'm God. Need to remind you of that. Second, you don't actually need to accuse me in order to defend your own innocence. You can be innocent, and I can be not throwing justice under the bus. You can be innocent. You can be right and righteous. And I can also be good. That's about it. That's pretty much all God says. And Job, instead of holding on to that fight and continuing that fight with God, maybe just because at this point we're 40 chapters in and we need to wrap it up, Job says, okay. I relent my yelling. Now there's a verse in here that's really confusing in the original Hebrew, and commentators, scholars debate about it constantly. Some people will teach that the verse says that Job repents and says, basically, I shouldn't have yelled at you, but that's not what the teachers who taught me believe. They believe that what the scriptures is saying is not I repent of yelling, I relent, I will stop my yelling, but I refuse to repent and say that I was wrong for having yelled at you in the first place. And Job has this really weird mixture of digging his heels in and saying, this is wrong, this is messed up, and I will not take that back. And also saying, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here, talking to me. Thank you for letting me yell. You're right, I don't understand. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. But you're holding that with me. And that's going to have to be enough. God responds to that by saying, Job, you're right. Job, you are righteous and your friends they don't understand. They actually really misrepresented me, and it makes me pretty angry. But you're a good dude, so you're going to pray for their forgiveness, and I'm going to forgive them. But you're right, Job. You are righteous. From beginning to end, blameless, upright. And so, we have an answer both to the accuser that says, no, actually, since stuff can go really sideways, and ultimately our relationship with God is about showing up for it, is about loving one another. And our devotion can take many forms, and that's where question two answers, what is the correct response to the innocent suffering we experience in the world? And the answer is yelling, yelling about it. Rage, questions, doubt. But bringing that to God, 
being deeper in relationship. Job is vindicated, and eventually he's restored. He gets more than he ever had. I'm sure his new children are even shinier than his old children. The point isn't when Job has stuff and doesn't have stuff. The point is that God appreciates, God values Job's rage, Job's questions, Job's refusal to be comforted by platitudes. Job's refusal to accept that it's his fault that evil has affected him. We learn from the story of Job that our worship doesn't have to be praise. Our worship can be yelling. Our worship can be saying, what the heck? It is an act of devotion, of relationship, when we rage at God and ask why. When we demand an audience, when we say, speak for yourself, because these schmoes around here are speaking all kind of nonsense that sounds terrible, and I don't buy it. And we have to know that we may not get answers. That part of our comfort is that, no, we weren't actually here when the stars were born. And that God is God, and we are human beings. But that shouldn't stop us from looking around and yelling. Today, we're going to pray together in the form of our song. Our musicians have made their prayers, their worship to God, complicated and rich, holding a wide variety of feelings. And so I invite you to pray with me and with the band through music.